Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. We have a second timer joining us today. I'm super grateful. Uh, I reached out to her a little last minute and said, hey, would you mind coming on and chatting with us for a while? She said yes. Dr. Yael Schoenbrun from Brown University. You guys may remember her voice from last year. Uh, we had her on with her book and um, we just kind of hit it off and I was like, this gal knows her stuff and she is helping me see the world with a little bit more clarity with a little bit more peace, a little bit more resilience. And so I'm super grateful to invite her back on and have her joining us. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, well, it was an honor the first time and I'm super, super honored to be brought back in to be told that um, <laughs> we clicked because I felt that too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, it's fun when that happens. And um, I, uh, you know, we mentioned this in the interview. And so maybe I should back up a little bit for our listeners. Uh, this whole concept of acceptment, acceptance commitment therapy, uh, I first crossed paths with it in your work, and then it was like 45 days of everywhere I'm looking, I'm, <laughs> I'm discovering this somewhere, whether it's books, podcasts, articles, wherever. And I was like, I am crazy interested into what this is. And like I told you before we got on the call today, I do not come from an academia background. I know little to nothing about the subject that you and I are going to talk about here. So I feel a little bit like a fish out of water because normally I have an outline. I kind of know where we're going. But my senses are something inside of me has said, Ashton, there's something in this acceptance commitment therapy that could be useful for myself, for our listeners, for the world at large. And so that's kind of where we're going on these next few podcast interviews. And you're our first one. You're our ex you're our resident expert when it comes oh, to this. <laughs> uh, those sound like big shoes to fill. But I'm excited because I am an ACT practitioner, but I live my life according to ACT principles because I find them so incredibly valuable. So I'm really excited that you're introducing your podcast audience to it because I think it is one of these super there, – there's a lot of evidence-based treatments out there. Um this to me is a really powerful one that I hope continues to gain a bigger footing in sort of the world of therapy and, yeah. and the world of just well-being because it's, it is a very, very powerful treatment. So what it is, is it's a therapy package that has been studied in lots and lots of randomized control trials. It's been looked at in terms of how helpful it is for all sorts of mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, um, schizophrenia, chronic pain, relationships, parenting, and found to be quite effective across the gamut. That doesn't mean that it's better than other treatments. Um, in fact, what we know from research in various clinical psychology treatments is that lots of them work pretty well. But I find that this one is very natural and it's very um, sort of life enhancing and in a very natural way, which I think is, is, is very cool. Um, so let me start off by just explaining a little bit about the central tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy. Show us the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, it so if you hear in the words, it's it you know acceptance and commitment. So there's these kind of I like to think of it as like east meets west, and I think this is a very deliberate um, piece of how the co-founders of acceptance and commitment therapy derived this model, which is that it does have a lot of Eastern philosophy, a lot of acceptance-based practices, a lot of mindfulness and acceptance and um, sort of sitting with what's uncomfortable and opening into it. And then it also has a lot of change components. This is more the Western style. 
And what's interesting from sort of a historical perspective is that, you know, if you like look way back in history, like Stoicism and Eastern mm-hmm. philosophy, it was much more ex- acceptance-based. And then we get into the modern world of psychology and it's all change-based. In mm-hmm. fact, when I went to graduate school, the model that I was trained under was very change-based. And it was really just around the early 90s that these acceptance approaches were starting to get integrated together with change approaches. And we found that they they work really well. It's like yin and yang, right? When we sort of bring both together, it's a lot, each one becomes a lot more powerful. So whole is greater than the sum of its parts, which is very, very cool. So there's acceptance components and change components. And at the core of acceptance and commitment therapy, we're always shooting to increase something that psychology psychologists call psychological flexibility. This is a kind of a fancy word for saying like showing up in line with what matters most to you, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm. And that's kind of a basic idea, but it's really, it's sort of simple in theory and pretty challenging to do in practice. Cause imagine I do a lot of couples therapy. Imagine that who you most want to be as a partner is somebody who is compassionate and respectful, but your partner says something that totally gets under your skin. And what do you do? You get very furious and disrespectful Mm -hmm. and that's not at all how you want to be, but you're triggered and your thoughts, you know, get out of control and your emotions heighten and and you start acting in ways that are not consistent and saying things that you later and very soon (laughs) regret and wish that you could take back because it's not how you most want to show up in the world, let alone in relationship to somebody that you deeply care about. And so, there are these six core processes that I can talk you through, you and your audience through, that help us to grow in our psychological flexibility. And psychological flexibility sort of sits in contrast to psychological inflexibility. So when we're inflexible, we keep doing things, even though it's not consistent with who we want to be and how we want to be. And it's usually because there's this short-term gain, like we're avoiding mm-hmm. what's uncomfortable, we're um, acting to defend our ourselves because we feel like we're under threat. And we do it in this way that feels pretty rigid. Like we, we find ourselves kind of almost predictably engaging in these ways that are not consistent with how we want to be. And then what we try to do in acceptance and commitment therapy is we try to help people grow flexibility, like try out new behaviors and see if they work better to be more in line with the kind of person that they want to be and to build their lives in the direction that they want to be building. Become a little more limber, if you will. Psychologically limber, exactly. <laughs> Psychologically <laughs> limber, yes. Um, before we get into the six, six core principles, can, can you can I jump back a little bit with you on this? Totally. Um, yeah. This this two worlds of acceptance and change. Uh, hold my hand and help me understand that because I'm I'm interested to see like where what are we even talking about when you talk about the, these two differences as far as how you studied this stuff and, and, and kind of learned it. When, when I hear, when I hear acceptance, right, that, that sits with me as kind of like reality is neutral. Um, careful how you judge everything, label every, you know, just accept reality for how it is. And then from there, perhaps you can change. Then I hear this change conversation that feels a lot more like control. Like I need to change the situation or maybe it's, I need to change the way I see it. I'm jumping all over the board, but but help me yeah. kind of help me help me kind of understand a little bit more about what you're getting into there. So, acceptance in the context of acceptance and commitment therapy is more about allowing for thoughts, emotions, and internal experiences that you struggle with. So it would be like if I have a hard day at work 
and I'm psychologically inflexible, I might find myself doing something numbing, right? To because mm-hmm. I don't want to make contact with the fact that I feel criticized or I feel a lack of me- lack of meaning in my work or a lack of connection with coworkers. And so I go home and I drink a bunch of whiskey or more consistent with who I am, I eat an entire package of cookies <laughs> because I just kind of want to numb that discomfort of like, I'm really unhappy and I don't know what to do. And so I turn to numbing agents and I do it in in a pretty repetitive fashion because I, I do want to sort of note that sometimes we have a hard day and it's okay to sort of give ourselves self-soothing. Sure. The problem isn't self-soothing. The problem is doing it inflexibly. So when we sort of feel like there's nothing else that we can do other than drink a bunch of booze or eat too much sweets or engage in other kind of um, numbing kinds of behavior. So the acceptance is, is about allowing for making contact with sort of having some equanimity or easygoingness Mm -hmm. with the uncomfortable internal experiences that we might be having. Same thing goes for the couple's context. If my partner says something nasty to me, rather than kind of shut it down quickly, sort of allow for like, okay, I'm feeling really hurt right now and make contact Mm -hmm. with it. And the change and, and this, so acceptance is actually one of the core processes and A second core process, and this is sort of a little bit out of order, that is related to change has to do with committed action. This is uh, one of the core processes in the way that it's defined is actively moving your life in directions that matter to you through behavior, through what you do with your hands, feet, and, and what you say with your mouth. So I might decide that it would be flexible for me to once in a while do something self soothing, but that it would help me more significantly to move my life in directions that mattered to me if at the end of a hard day at work, I went for a walk, right? Because that would be healthy. It would allow me to make contact with what I wanted, but it would help my mind to stay engaged and reflecting on like, what do I want to do with my work life? Or I could do something like start talking to people in other jobs and exploring what other kind of work there might be. Or I could decide to pivot in how I do my work to find some meaning mm. or to shift my expectations yeah. around my work. So it's it's not about the the change has to do more with how we respond to the internal experiences rather than controlling it. So I think you made a really good yeah. point that when I say change, it, it sort of gets you to thinking like, oh, I'm trying to control my experience. It's actually the opposite. So it's we recognize that our internal experiences can't be controlled, but we can choose, we can make deliberate choices about how we respond to our internal experiences. So rather than reflexively react, we can make value-aligned response choices based on what matters most to us. Yeah, super helpful. Acceptance is making room, allowing, everything belongs. There's, there's You give yourself some immensity and space for that. Change is the permission sh- permis- permission slip to shift, to uh, to pivot, to go a different direction. It's not so much about control. It's more of the reminder of you've got some options here. Yes, yep. exactly. Yep. And there's actually this really terrific, um, if people want to look it up, there's uh, a really nice, very simple graphic called the choice point in acceptance and commitment therapy. Hmm. And it basically is like at any given moment, we have a choice and the choice is to act in line with our values or to act out of line with our values. 
it becomes much harder to act in line with our values when we get really hooked on uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. internal experiences. And so what act the ACT processes help you to do is take a moment, unhook from those thoughts and experience, and then be more deliberate about that choice. Because what happens when we're really caught up in those, un- in those discomforts is that we're acting on autopilot. And often that autopilot is when we find ourselves acting out of line with our values. So if we can slow it down, make contact, grow some more deliberate awareness, and then make those more eyes open choices about how we respond to those uncomfortable internal experiences, that gives us the space as you're really beautifully articulating the space and the permission to say, what do I want to do here? Because I'm tempted to go this way. Like my emotions and my thoughts are are telling me to strike back. Mm-hmm. But hang on, because I know that the last time I did that, I felt like that wasn't how I wanted to show up. What what do I want to do in this moment? Could I make a different choice, right? It would be difficult, but it would be an opportunity to grow my flexibility and try something different. Yeah. Victor Frankel, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space, and in that space lies our destiny. Something like that. So. Absolutely. And so interestingly, Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, lies it is part of what inspired acceptance and commitment therapies development. Wow. And it's uh, and that's literally my favorite book of all time. And yeah. I like reread it every year and I constantly find new inspiration. But it really is all about finding that space between the stimulus and the response. And these core processes are exactly what help us to do exactly that. Because it's 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 nice in theory and hard in practice. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait until that stimulus hits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we're wired to we're wired for survival. We're not wired right. to live in alignment with our values. So, like when we feel triggered, our brain and our body immediately wants to respond and to you know protect ourselves. The problem is, it's sort of like a culture, uh, an evolutionary mismatch that our culture has mm-hmm. evolved much more quickly than our brains have, and a lot of the things that trigger us into thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm under threat." are not actual imminent threats at all. Right. And in fact, um, when we respond in line with what our impulses would suggest we do, we actually reduce our our connection to the things that matter most to us. It's yeah. unfortunate, but it yeah. kind of is just what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I hadn't thought about that, that the the evolution of our inbox and what may trigger us, uh, the the at the at the neuro level, right, we're 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 not as evolved, so it's tigers in the bushes, right? As soon as the email pops up. Exactly. Oh, that's yep. that's so well put. Yes. Yep. Yep. Like, oh, yep. there's a yep. tiger in my inbox. I'm like, everything <laughs> is, you know, gonna turn out catastrophically. But like, it's just an inbox. It's that's probably right. gonna be fine. But but that is, I think that there's no need to judge that response. Sure. That's part of just our brains and how we're wired. But it's helpful to recognize that it's not our fault. But what we can do is we can learn to. Uh, practice different kinds of responses. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So after the call, I'm going to go check out the choice point image. Uh, make yeah. sure all of our listeners do that too. Um, okay. Well then let's go through these six core principles. Maybe you've hit some already, but where do we begin? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I usually begin with mindfulness. So mindfulness okay. is defined as getting in contact non-judgmentally with the present moment. So that's the sort of like what's going on, right? And and we often sort of conflate mindfulness and and meditation, but they're different. Meditation mm-hmm. is sort of a more formal practice, but mindfulness is just, you know, bringing your awareness into the moment and just, you know, reflecting like, how am I feeling? What's going on? What's coming up for me? Noticing your body, noticing your mind. And I do think that meditation, there's no question. It's not just what I think, right? Research shows that meditation does help us 
get more mindful and some people are more dispositionally mindful than others, but it's always, I, I always say growth mindset. Like even if you're not a very naturally mindful person, you can always practice getting more mindful. And I think that this is one of the very important things in our culture that we don't practice enough because we're so inundated with stimuli and there's always an opportunity to be distracted and not be aware that like you're breathing, you're sitting, you're feeling, you're noticing, you're getting triggered. The more that we notice it, the, the more empowered we are to to make that more yeah. deliberate choice. So mindfulness, getting in contact non-judgmentally with the present moment. Non-judgmentally, not labeling, non-judgmentally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. The non-judgmental part is really important because, and, and there's this sort of Buddhist parable of the first and the second arrow, like life throws stuff at us yeah. constantly. That's the first arrow, but our judgment acts as a second arrow. We shoot ourselves mm -hmm. where we, where we just got shot by life instead of bringing some soothing to it. Mm -hmm. So rather than judge your reaction to life throwing an arrow at you, can you just notice that you've been shot try to take the arrow out or, or bring some soothingness to it. Um, that would be the mindful, mindful response, the non-judgmental response, the judgmental response again is shooting yourself with that second arrow. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So the, the second core process that I'd already mentioned is acceptance. And again, that's allowing with equanimity or easygoingness, the thoughts, emotions, and experiences that you struggle with. So it's not just noticing them, it's allowing for them, making space for them. And it could be, for example, like you notice feeling a lot of shame. And so rather than trying to distract away from it, just breathing into it, and this mm. is also kind of a meditation-like exercise where you actually open up the space or you know make contact with it, allow for it. The third um, process, core process, is self as context. So it's a, the awareness that, one of the things that our brain is super, super good at doing, it's part of what makes us human, is generating thoughts and stories. And there's very good reason for that, right? Our world is very complicated. We have so many, like just on the drive to work, you know, you're, you have to like navigate the steering wheel and the gas pedal and the brake pedal and the radio station and there's stoplights and there's uh, pedestrians who don't necessarily look up. And maybe you have a toddler in the back seat who's screaming and maybe you forgot to eat breakfast. And so you need to stop over. Like there's a lot of things happening and that's just on a simple drive mm -hmm. to work, let alone a complex interaction with somebody who you have a complicated history with. So our mind generates stories and labels to sort of organize the world so that it's coherent enough that we can stay engaged in a, in a realistic way. So it's great that our mind generates stories, but we get so absorbed in the stories and they feel so true that we forget that there's lots of different ways of interpreting or organizing what's happening around us and inside of us. And so this is an important element of acceptance and commitment therapy is that part of rig the rigidity that happens at psychological inflexibility is because of the way that we relate to language. Yep. We see language as like truth with a capital T instead of this is something that the mind does. You know, it's one way to think about things or look at things, but it's not ultimate truth at all. In fact, again, I do a lot of couples therapy, like invariably two people will have two totally different stories of the exact same event. And they're, they're both true, right? They right. both have truth inside of them. Yep but they're emphasizing different parts of the story that mattered most to them. And, and they exist in different skin. So they're experiencing very differently. And so trying to adjudicate who has ultimate truth is not effective <laughs> at all, but like making space for the fact that they both are selves in context and teaching them to 
make space for the other person's view and perspective. So selfless context is this idea that that we sort of live inside of our interpretations and it's the ability to try to recognize that. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to go ahead and invite you on in May for self as context, self as context. Yeah. Cause I think that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole nother thread that yeah. we could go for a long, long time. I love how you just said we take language as truth with a capital T. Like ma- this is, this is a massive, massive idea. And even just hearing you process it, I'm like, Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm now seeing where this is all going. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's one of the most powerful um, processes of all because, I mean, just think about it. Like our mind generates thousands and thousands right. of thoughts per day and we're so fused with it and we don't even question it. And yet it's so narrow because mm-hmm. we're just seeing the world through our own eyes and just that recognition and one, one thing that I think is so powerful is, is if, and this gets to the next, so the next process is called diffusion. So it's okay. this active process of unhooking from our thoughts and mm. stories. And that ability to do that, to say my mind is saying that my partner is a villain. Like I, my partner may or may not be a villain, but that's what my mind is saying. Right. Being able to just note that to yourself, my mind is telling me it opens up all sorts of options. Like, do I want to attach to that as the ultimate truth in order to protect myself from somebody who may be a villain? Or do I want to recognize that sometimes my partner is, you know, not very thoughtful and sometimes they're very, very thoughtful. And right now they're not being thoughtful and I'm, and I'm feeling hurt, right? That's, that's more nuanced and recognizes some perspective and some history. But when we're feeling emotional, it's like that tiger in the bush, we drop into a hardcore story that feels very black and white. And that is rarely, it's rarely accurate and it's almost never helpful. So I always tell people, so I was trained in a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy that really was dedicated to focusing on helping people to correct cognitive distortions. And so, and distortions are like, your thoughts are inaccurate. Hmm. In acceptance and commitment therapy, we're, we're less curious about the accuracy and we're a lot more curious about the workability is this thought helping us to move ourselves and our lives in directions that matter or is it interfering with it? And so whether or not it's true is less important than whether it's workable, workable for us and the kind of Mm -hmm. lives that we want to be living and the kinds of people that we want to be showing up as. And, you know, certainly as a couples therapist, like this is really important, right? Your partner may have misbehaved, but when you get fused with that thought, how does it cause you to engage with them and how does it cause you to, sh- you to show up in your life more generally? And if it causes you to act angry and shut down and to you know not be open to communicating and repairing, then that's problematic, even if they were a total jerk, mm-hmm. right? Even if you, you're totally right that they misbehaved. And so unhooking from it and deciding what thought you could feed more profitably, like what kind of a thought would be more workable for you, is one of the most powerful things that we can do. And so again, diffusion is unhooking from thoughts and stories. And it can be as simple as, again, my mind is telling me that, mm-hmm. or I'm having the thought that. Mm-hmm. You use a lot of questions like, where do I want to go from here? Is this helpful? Is this who I want to be? Like, I think even just the introduction to questions in between the stimulus and the response is a whole yeah. leap in consciousness, honestly. I mean, I mean, it really is a huge step. Do I, Can I diffuse? you know, diffuse from this? Can I unhook from this? We're not here to 
determine who was right or wrong. That's almost not even interesting in this con. Where that's that's not what we're doing here. We're we're asking, do you want to move forward? Do you want to go somewhere? Do you want to move into an interesting, peaceful path from here? Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. I, one other metaphor that I really like is from Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier. And he, he mm -hmm. talks a lot about meditation, but he talks about like when we're absorbed in our thoughts, we're sort of in the waterfall and unhooking from them is like stepping behind the waterfall and seeing all the mm -hmm. thoughts like streaming down. And what a powerful like rather than being deluged, yeah. you know, we can take a step back and, and decide, like, do we want to step back in the waterfall? Do we want to go a different path? How do we want to show up for that part of the journey? Yeah. So it, it can be very powerful to just take a, a short step back. Even, yeah. a, even a small step back is, is eye-opening. For sure. No, so liberating. Just to, just to give yeah. as, you have the, as you develop these tools. Because, um, again... The second that stimulus hits, it's a whole different ball game. But if, if you've if you've got something you can reach into your pocket and go to, uh, it's a lot more helpful to exist in that space. Yeah, and you just use the word liberating, and I just want to make reference one of my favorite books on acceptance and commitment. There, there's a lot, and I can send you a list if if your listeners are interested in reading up more on it. But is written by one of the ACT co-founders whose name is Steve Hayes, and it's called The Liberated Mind. And Love really, it. these processes are liberating because rather than being driven by your thoughts and feelings, you get to take a step back and, and make more um, value-aligned choices. And, and the next process that I was going to list is values. So values mm. clarification is, um, in my mind, one of the most important processes. And the reason is because it's sort of the compass that guides everything. And values in ACT are defined as having clarity in how you want to show up moment to moment, right? It's, so if you think about the metaphor of climbing a mountain, getting to the top of the mountain might be your goal. That's the destination. Your values, however, are how you want to take that journey yeah. step by step. And sometimes, right, we're just, we, I mentioned that psychological flexibility is always what we're going for under underneath it all. Sometimes we're going to have to switch how we take the journey because we might have initially decided, like, I really want to get a good workout and get to the top of the mountain as quickly as I can. Or maybe you're taking the journey with a friend and you want to really be connected as you get up the mountain. But then what if as you're going up the mountain, kind of hurrying along, getting your workout or chatting with your friend, weather comes up? Right now you have to switch how you're going to do it. Now it no longer makes sense to hurry up the mountain. It might make sense instead to turn back down or find shelter. And the other thing to note is that your value may not be the value that is most important to somebody else. Right. So you might want to be really mindful and another person might want to get that workout or be connected <laughs> to a friend. And there's no bad value. It's really just having clarity for yourself. And when you have clarity for yourself, it's much easier to tolerate discomfort moment to moment because you know what you want to stand for. So for example, if you are having an argument with your child and you know, for you being compassionate and present with your kid is the most important thing, then when your kiddo says something really rude, you might be able to kind of sit with it a little bit mm. more easily, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. make it easy, but you sort of almost transcend it because you say, this is the parent that I want to be. I want to be somebody who kind of allows them their say, hears them, and then, you know, maybe firmly sets a boundary. But I want to do it from a place of calm compassion rather than anger and reactivity. And so when you're clear on that, it gives you that compass, that, that thing that you can sort of anchor your behavior with. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes. It reminds you of what's important to you, right? It reminds you of once the, once the dust settles, who did you want to be in the midst of that moment, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Another example that I always like to share is that, so I tend to be somebody who, like, I get very socially anxious, like podcasting or, you know, whatever the public things that I'm doing. But knowing that it's really important for me to share this evidence-based science practices that can help people live healthier, fuller, happier, more successful lives, it helps me to tolerate that discomfort because it's so important to me. And I know that I'll probably stumble over my words and it might be a little bit embarrassing. But what I want to stand for is somebody who disseminates good science, who disseminates good clinical practice, who helps to make a positive impact on the world. And so for me... It, it's sort of like the anxiety is going to be along for the ride, but I know that this is something that matters to me and it's worth tolerating that anxiety. And it helps me to kind of allow for it and not make it the center of my focus, but just know that it's going to be present. And so values kind of help us and, and all these core processes really interrelate, but it helps me to stay accepting of whatever anxiety might come up as I'm doing something like a podcast conversation. And the same thing goes for, you know, a conflict or um, being angry uh, with your child or, um, you know, being disappointed and, you know, striving for some achievement that, that has been really difficult for you to get. If you know that it's important for you to keep trying, then you're a lot more willing to tolerate some of that frustrations or embarrassments or failures even and keep going. Well said, well said. Number six. Number six, as I mentioned before, is committed action. So that's the idea of the process of moving your life in directions that matter most to you. And so this is kind of like where the rubber hits the road. So if you have a good sense of what your values are, then you might ask yourself, okay, well, what would that look like in practice? So for example, if you, if I have a couple and they say, well, it's really important to me to stay respectful and curious um, about what my partner's experience is, then we we really get down to brass tacks and ask, like, what would that look like? If you're in an argument and you're feeling really emotionally elevated, triggered, what would it look like for you in that kind of a moment to act in line with your values of being respectful and curious? What would you say? What would you do? And can you imagine doing that even while feeling triggered and angry? And can you practice doing that? So it's it's a little bit like showing up in line with your values, even when you feel angry, even when you feel um, irritated or disappointed, even when you're having thoughts, my partner doesn't deserve this. Can you still show up as the person you most want to be in that kind of a moment? And it's, again, simple, but not easy. Yep, yep, for sure. And I also think it's calming in the midst of a little bit of chaos. Like these, these steps and these tools... They, uh, even if you can just reach for one of them, right? You may not need all six, you'll get to all six, but like even just knowing, oh, okay, hold on a second. I just need to be mindful for a bit. That itself is going to tone down a little bit of the chaos, right? Everything gets a little more simple and quiet instead of chaotic and complicated. Uh, and, And I think that in itself is a quantum leap in the midst of disagreement challenge hurdles uh, that you're navigating um self as context oh my gosh like i see the world in a certain way i should honor that guess what they probably see the world in a certain way just these little things i think can can 
If we invite them into the workplace, invite them into our relationships, invite them into raising our children, um, this this is how we can all tune in, tune up into a lovely song that I think we all want to be, if you will. That's my Enneagram 4 way to explain all that. I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. No, it's beautiful. Yeah, and I, I do think you're 100% right that if you could just even identify like one or two of these that you're willing to try out to practice, it is, it, it's centering, yeah. right? In the chaos of what you might otherwise Sorry. do or, or in the habit loop of what you might otherwise do, you have sort of like a, a different pathway that you can choose and if you can make it simple, you know, all the better. I, I know for myself, so I used to actually, most people are surprised to hear this, but like I usually, I used to struggle with anger. Like I would sort of lose my temper really fast, particularly with my partner. And then I developed just like a, sh- a, a brief mantra that was my two values, which is calm and assertive. Hmm. So whenever I feel the anger rising, it's two things, right? It's one is being mindful, like the anger is rising. So I have to notice my red flags. And, and for me, it's very physiological. So like, I know what my physiological flags are. It's like elevated heart rate. And I start to feel my face getting hot. And then I say those words to myself, calm, assertive, calm, assertive. And it just, it points me in a direction that I used to not be able to go in because I wasn't even aware. It gives me a little bit of a pathway that is clear in, in sort of the red fury that, yes. that comes up still. And I can act in a very different way just based on those two different processes that I'm engaging, the, the mindfulness and the values. Yeah. Yep. So for maybe our listeners who are hearing you and I geek out on, you know, the six core principles here of, of act where, how do, how, what step one, right? Whether, (laughs) whether it's with our spouse, our children in the workplace, what is your invitation for us to take what you and I have kind of chatted through here and, and really like enflesh it in the real world, give it some form, allow it some, some space to do its thing. Well, my favorite place to start actually is with values work. And it's just asking yourself, like in, in the hardest moment of your week, how, how have you showed up and how would you most like to show up? Mm. Like, what are the ways of being? So values are, we can define it as a quality of action, which is kind of like a, an adverb. So like how, the Mm -hmm. how that you'd like to show up that is different than how you've showed up in the past? What is it that you most want to represent in a difficult moment, in a conflict or in a disappointment or or when you're fatigued or in a particular relationship or role? How is it that you really care to show up? What would make you feel most proud and a sense of like, this is how, this is how I want to show up in the world. And to use that and, and then to create like a little mantra around it, use a couple of words to describe that how. And next time that moment comes up, repeat that mantra to yourself and see if you can use that mantra to direct you in a new direction. I love it. I love it. Um, how about with our children? You know, like mm. I, 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 um, there's this, you ever have that moment where you're like, Oh my gosh, they got 25 more years before they're in on the joke. They're, they got, they got some stuff <laughs> they need to learn and I wish I could teach it now. Um, how, uh, but I want to be gentle. I want to be, um, uh, I want to allow that space, right, for them to fumble, for them to learn this stuff. I want to be that redemptive, peaceful presence in their life. How can we, uh, I mean, would you say the same thing goes for us as parenting, like anchor into some values and, and from there emerge into the relationship? 
I'm not sure this is exactly the, the answer to the question that you're asking, but I have so many thoughts on the parenting realm. But I will just say, first and foremost, that I teach this stuff to my kids all the time. Hmm. And they, they, I'm sure they find it annoying on the one hand. But actually, my middle child, who, who's, who's got big feelings, just like his mom, has made this huge transformation and he's so proud of himself like he practices <laughs> act processes it's the cutest thing it's really the cutest thing we actually went bowling last night and he had a really hard time he wasn't doing well at first and I could see him like being mindful taking a breath allowing for his frustration connecting to his values of not giving up and then by the end of the night he turned to me and he's like I did it like I didn't give Love up that. and I got better it was amazing. It was so amazing how not not just that he did better, but how proud he was that he kind of stuck with it because what he used to do is bow out mm -hmm. and like, you know, be like, I'm not I'm not doing this anymore. It's too hard. Everyone's better than me. I give up. And it really has helped him with frustration tolerance. So that's one thing is like your kids are never too young to learn. Well, maybe they are too young to learn at some point, but <laughs> um, they can learn pretty young. Um, the second is, I think as a parent, one of the biggest pieces of advice that is really such a priority is to remember that your kids' values are not necessarily your values. And yeah. it is important to honor them as autonomous beings who might have different things that matter very deeply to them. And that doesn't mean that you can't set boundaries and have house rules and expectations. But the more that you get curious about what matters to you, what do you want to stand for, the more you give them a sense of agency and a sense of investment in committed action aligned with their values. Yeah. And for the most part, they're going to be pro-social values because most people are pro-social people. And the alternative of trying to force your values onto them is going to cause a rift and it's going to cause a lot of psychological reactance. And they're sometimes going to act out of line with their own values just because they don't want to be controlled. Mm. And so I think as a parenting practice, again, starting even from a very young age with our kids, because even babies have, you know, want to have a sense of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable, right? This is one of the core human drives is that we are autonomous creatures. So the more we honor that, the more we give our kids a chance to really get clear on what they want to stand for and, and to really develop a set of of values and committed actions and awareness that of the kind of life that they want to be building towards and the kind of people that they want to be showing up as. Yeah. Create, model that, create that atmosphere for them to, out of curiosity, discover these things that they can anchor into for a lifetime. Um, yes. I think maybe there's the work. That's what I need to, that's what I need to be tilling the soil for the seeds, for everything to bloom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I love that you're listing the word curiosity because I think that is a really important value in any relationship. I think as parents and as partners, we often assume we know, like, oh, I already know what their values are. I already know what they're going to say. I already know what matters to them. But people are constantly, like we are constantly evolving and changing as are our partners, as are our kids. And the more that we get curious, like, and, and even if we know something, like we can always deepen our knowledge mm -hmm. about another person and how good does it feel for the other person to have you be curious about them and to honor the fact that they are somebody worth worthy of being curious about. And that is such a bonding experience to be curious and to have somebody be curious about you. It's such a knowledge growing experience and, 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 and an opportunity for them to get to know themselves better through that kind of communication. Yeah. Yeah. As I look at these three pages of notes I've taken here, um, mm -hmm. acceptance, commitment, therapy, it is an honoring of one's autonomy. 
you know, like it really is. It's an, it's a, it's an honoring of the way they see the world. It's an honoring yeah. of what they may value. And, and the degree to which we can do that with ourselves is probably the degree to which we can do that with our neighbor or the people we live with and work with. Um, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Okay. This was awesome. Um, <laughs> I think we covered some ground here. Is there, is there anything, yeah. I mi- is there I anything hope, we missed? I hope I didn't overwhelm people. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground and I probably should cut myself off. But what I will say is just a really terrific, um, nice resource to start with if you're interested in acceptance and commitment therapy and you're interested and you like books is uh, one of my two of my colleagues wrote this terrific book called the act daily journal diana hill and debbie Sorensen, and it's a nice short read with exercises you can basically walk yourself through eight weeks of acceptance and commitment therapy using these um, very beautiful experiential exercises and there's some reading but it's not an overwhelming amount of reading so it's one of my favorite texts to start people off with right on perfect um, well, hey, thank you for taking a risk with me today and allowing me just to say, <laughs> hey, we're going to talk about something and I don't know where it's going to go. Um, but truly, I'm super grateful for your work and energy and wisdom in the world. And uh, I know our listeners, I think it's going to make their lives lighter and brighter. And um, like I told you on the last call, you're welcome here anytime. So if you have something you want to oh. chat about, keep us on speed dial. Oh, you're awesome, Ashton. Your podcast is a resource and you are just an awesome human being. So I'm really delighted to be connected with you in the world and to have the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have you back soon. And uh, thanks so much. Thank you.